oh, Phil, it's a, there's nothing greater in the world than have somebody recommend a book to you and you go out and get that book. Well, better still to give you a book, you know, as a, as a present. I think you'll like this. And then to find, yes, I do like this. I love this. Thank you so much. So I think a book recommendation is one of the greatest things in life. Where I start with always is the murder itself. I really just begin with somebody murders somebody else for a reason. And what is the reason? Is it clever? Something that's different? Something that's never been done before? Something that's surprising? Is the identity of the killer going to be fun and curious when we reveal who it is and the person who is killed? Do they deserve it? Is it the right person? All that sort of questions. been caught in Waterstone some years ago pulling a book out of the shelf and turning it round so it was face, uh, facing the audience and it was just as my books were beginning to break through and the person came up to me and said you wrote that didn't you and I said oh god they've seen <laughs> but then of course they were very nice that was Waterstone's bath I remember that <laughs> Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And it's the one that we told you about today, the one that we were very excited about, the return visitor. And I think I even said friend of the podcast, which he liked, didn't he? He, he liked to be. And we like it. We like he's our friend. <laughs> is he? Do you yeah, think he is? he 100% is. Or are you just leading me down a path for needy friend person again? <laughs> no, and trying to no, lure no, me no. In. You're, on, you're yeah. on safe ground here. Okay, fine. <laughs> you're on safe ground with Mr. Anthony Horowitz. Yeah, and he is friend of this podcast because he's the only person we've had back. Um, but I quite like this idea of maybe having somebody back in the next series from from this series. Pre- yeah, exactly. Is that really is that factually correct? You've got me thinking now. Is, that, is it the only repeat visitor? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's isn't it? I thought Kate McIntosh had done too, but she hasn't. No, she hasn't. You're merging your radio and podcast world. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm a man who needs a holiday. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Anthony Horowitz, who is a joy to speak to and always has so, so many fascinating things to say about everything. Like, I mean, in this interview, I think we went to lots of avenues oh, yeah, of conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. that I, wa- I wasn't expecting at all. But yeah, all brilliant, all fascinating. So the book's called A Line to Kill, and it's the latest in the Hawthorne series. Now, had you read one of these before, no, Nat? No, I hadn't. Because the last time we did him for the Magpie Murders series didn't it which is the book within a book that's the hook for that one so the hook for these and i said to him i said this to his face when the first one came out it's so audacious he's put himself in the book alongside this fictional detective called hawthorne who solves all the cases who's a bit like sherlock really he's so too clever for his own good kind of thing but he's not really likable hawthorne is it and in fact even anthony horwitz the real anthony horwitz doesn't like him even though he no. created him and writes about him. Yeah. And, and I quite f- liked him. What does that say about me then? <laughs> this is oh. my first experience of reading a Hawthorne. I was like, oh, he's quite cantankerous and uh, yeah, my kind of people. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Have you done the psychopath test? Uh, no. Okay. Be interesting it's, like, it's like it first rule of psychopath test. Have you done it? <laughs> in which case. <laughs> yeah, in which case. Yeah, well, John Ronson, who wrote that book, just quick digression, right? I've, I did the psychopath test for a guest on a radio show because there was, the, there was a new drama about psychos. Mm. And so the, as a stunt, the production company sent you the psychopath test and you did it. I'm 55% psychopath. Okay. Um, which obviously, when you think about it, they think, well, that means I'm more psycho than I'm not, right? But apparently that's a really low score. You need to be scoring 70 or upwards to be a threat to anybody. Okay, is it bad that my brain's now like, I would score well on this. This is a good thing. It's really not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the one thing you don't want to be competitive yeah. on, Nat, I would okay, suggest. This I'm is not a board f- game. I'm going to find it, it send it to you now. <laughs> I now want to know what your score is going to be. I'm not going to do it. It'll be terrifying. Um, anyway, why did I mention that? Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, some of the traits that Hawthorne has are borderline psychopath. Okay. So, um, lack of empathy, that kind of thing. Oh, no, I have a load of empathy. If anything, right. I have too much empathy. Yeah. I think I would go as far to say I'm an empath. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, John Ronson in his book, The Psychopath Test, says, if you're doing the test, right, to work out if you're a psychopath or not, he said, already you've passed the test, you're not one. Well, because, yeah, there you go. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, hang on a minute. So I haven't done the test. What? No. And okay. also, you you want to score highly there. No, I don't. You, I you're don't. like going for gold. <laughs> This is bad. Okay, I think we need to like, you know, just like kill off this conversation right now and let's get into Anthony. See, look, you're talking about killing things off already. (laughs) Oh, stop it. 
Okay, here is the proper intro from Phil for Anthony Horowitz. Our guest on bestsellers today needs very little introduction other than to tell you he's sold millions of books. He's written for television, he's written for film, and we consider him to be a genius and a friend of this podcast. He is Mr. Anthony Horowitz. Welcome back. I'm very happy to be back, Phil, and Natalie too. And it's uh, and I would love to, I love your description as a friend of this podcast. I'm, I'm glad to think of myself as just that. <laughs> well, you probably won't if you like. Phil's got a running theme that I'm like a needy friend person that I just want to befriend authors. So you might like. Uh, want you might to... need a restraining order by <laughs> the end of the pod. <laughs> authors need friends, Natalie. That's exactly. just what we need. <laughs> exactly. Actually, I would like to start on that point. And um, before we get into your brilliant new book, Aligned to Kill, um, who are your kind of author friends? Do you have like a sort of reading group of people whose opinion you trust or you run story ideas by? Does that still happen? Well, my closest friend and my most brilliant reader is my wife, Jill mm. Green, who is also my producer on Follows War and all the other television shows, Alex Ryder, and coming up quite soon, Magpie Murders. Um, so she reads everything and she is genius. In fact, uh, Alain to Kill is dedicated to her because it was her idea to, to write this book um, at the time that I, that I did as number three in the series. Um, uh, outside her, I don't actually show other writers my work. Indeed, I always advise young writers writers not to share their work, especially mm. with writers, because they're so bloody opinionated. You know, you, you want to, you, you, you don't want them telling you <laughs> what to do with your works. But that said, I do have some very, very close friends in the sort of writing world. And, and I love the fact, well, I should say what I've most missed in during COVID and lockdown has been literary festivals, the chances to catch up, the chance to catch up with so many of my friends in, you know, in, in literary fields, uh, quite literally the case, you know, in places like Hay, etc. Um, so so that, that's who reads my books anyway. And, and as we've got sidetracked, I'm going to stay sidetracked with you. How on earth are you doing magpie murders for television when they're all books within books? With extreme difficulty. You have no idea how long it took me to write, <laughs> to adapt the scripts. I think it was something like two and a half years of writing wow. to actually get the scripts right. And then fortunately, we managed to lure, first of all, Leslie Manville into the lead part, but also Peter Catania, the director of The Full Monty, came in. And his work is breathtaking. How he makes it all make sense, I just don't know. But he's, but he's done a wonderful job. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. So what stage is that at? Because was that affected at all by last year's 2020s pandemic. I mentioned my wife, Jill. She actually managed to run two programmes, Alex Ryder and Magpie, through COVID to, make, to shoot. And it was a nightmare, frankly. I mean, you have no idea how difficult it was, how much money it cost for all those tests, for all the masks, for keeping actors distant from everybody else and uh, all the different protocols that slowed down the filming. And she just managed it. She just managed to bring them both in. If she was trying to shoot now, you may have read in the papers that productions have been closing down. Bridgerton closed down just a week ago, I mean, second mm. season of that. Because now, if you know one ping and you're out, uh, so, so it has been really the skin of the teeth stuff and uh, completely exhausting. What I've seen so far are the first two episodes of um, Magpie, which I loved. And um, I've seen two or three episodes of Alex, which looks great too. Uh, so, so both will be ready by the end of the year. And who's got Magpie Murders, Anthony? Um, it's being shown by BritBox, although I do have hopes that it will then somehow migrate to ITV uh, and also in America by PBS. Great. So that's end of the year. And obviously we know Alex is on Amazon Prime, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean again, I was going to bring this question later, but seeing as you're already talking about the multitude of projects you work on, um, and as somebody who's, I'm now working on my second book. Um, <laughs> first one's still not published. Uh, it's just, what is the title? Uh, the title of my second book is Royalty. Uh, the title of my first book is Awards Night. Um, may change, who knows, uh, but I found it really hard to just kind of hold those stories in my head, certainly when I was kind of first draft stage, and I wondered, because you flit around so many big stories and big unravelling crime thrillers, how many can you hold in your head at any one time, and how do you switch that on and off with seemingly ease? I try to write only one book at a time. I, I can't possibly write a whodunit as complicated as Magpie Murders or A Line to Kill uh, and do something else at the same time. But what I can do, however, is work on A Line to Kill three days a week and do two days a week of edits on, on the TV show of Magpie because it's been made and they're just lines to add and sort of, you know, VOs to put in, all that sort of stuff. 
Um, but by and large, I do try to compartmentalize everything. You know, I think you could ask the same question of a teacher. How does a teacher manage mm. to do seven classes a day with seven possibly different groups of children and different subjects and different, you know, and, and, but they do. And, and that is how everybody behaves and works. And, and for a writer, it's no different. I compartmentalize like, like the rest of the world. Yeah. Does that help right. you, Nat? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it does. I think it's I think it's good to hear that you still do just focus on one book at a time when you're doing the main writing of it because you're still figuring stuff out in your brain and you need those kind of presumably need that time to just work out the characters a bit more and work out what's going to happen and I keep very detailed notebooks. I mean, every time I write a book, I do about 20 or 30 pages of notes that begin with just questions to myself. You know, how is the murder committed? Where is the killer? What is the weapon? Well, how does this happen? How does that happen? And so I have a list of, because I, I haven't got a brilliant memory. I forget things, you know, the, you know I, I go upstairs to get my glasses. And by the time I reach the bedroom, I've forgotten what it is that I've come to get. That's how bad my memory is. So therefore everything is written down in a book. And I have a, it's almost like a map. A, a, a map to guide me through the book with everything in its correct place. Yeah. yeah. Should we hear a bit of a line to kill before we start discussing it? Then? Because this is your latest thriller that has occupied all of those notebooks and all of that mental space as you plot this kind of whodunit. We should set this up quite gently because I don't want to do any spoilers. So basically, if you've not read these any of the previous Hawthorne books, the most audacious aspect to them is that Anthony's in them as himself. And Anthony writes up Hawthorne's kind of crime-solving escapades, right? In this one, you and Hawthorne are off to Alderney to a literary festival. That is the section I've chosen, actually. It's the moment when I'm at my publisher's, Penguin Random House, and Hawthorne and I are being told about this literary festival. Uh, and so it's right quite near the beginning of the book, and therefore no spoilers, etc. Shall I, shall I tell you what happens? Please do. Trish offered Hawthorne coffee, which he accepted in the biscuit, which he refused. He never ate in front of other people if he could avoid it. For the next five minutes, Graham, my editor, talked about the publishing business, current trends, his hopes for the book. It's never easy launching a new series, he said, but we have a reasonable shot at the bestseller list. There's not much else coming out this September. New Stephen King and, of course, Dan Brown will grab a top spot. We deliberately chose a quiet week. How would you feel about doing some radio? The question was directed at Hawthorne, not me. I'm okay with radio, Hawthorne said. Have you had any experience of the media? Only Crime Watch. Tamara, who didn't smile often, smiled at that. We've approached Front Row and Saturday Live, she said, speaking to the room. They're waiting to read the book. But the fact that Mr. Hawthorne actually worked for the police is definitely of interest. And the fact that he got thrown out, I was tempted to ask. So there it is. That's just me on the way. <laughs> As you can see already, that everybody in my publishing house is delighted that Hawthorne is there and they're interested in Hawthorne. And I'm the guy sitting in the, sort of the back of the room and nobody notices. Typical <laughs> of my life with Hawthorne. <laughs> and is that, is that, I don't know if that does translate as well to something like Alex Ryder, where people are fascinated with the actors in your shows as opposed to the person who created them necessarily sometimes. Yeah, I always had that feeling finally when I was visiting schools that you know Alex Ryder is so cool he's young he's good looking he saves the world he's you know he's all these things and in trundles this sort of just man with sort of you know in a, in a suit or a tie or a t-shirt <laughs> or whatever and, and I would worry that the kids are going to be so disappointed this is the guy behind Alex Ryder so yes I'm <laughs> always I'm always overshadowed by my characters. And I'm sure this is the thing. So was Doyle, so was Bond, so was Fleming. I mean, it's interesting. I think I I have always had a strong interest in writers who come to hate their characters because the characters are loved much more than they are. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really weird, that's a really weird kind of psyche thing, right? To kind of create this monster. I guess it's like the ultimate Frankenstein almost, isn't it? But um, you're kind of creating something. You are the master or mistress of the of your creation. Also, I was thinking when you said that, Anthony, if people didn't fall in love with your characters, then you wouldn't have done your job. Surely, the, mm. if you're basking in anything, you're basking in that success, aren't you? The fact that people adore characters that come from your imagination. Well, I think people, I mean, it's an interesting question. Do people buy a, shall we say, a, 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 a Rebus book because they love Rebus or because they love Ian Rankin? I mean, what is what is their choice? I mean, I think the truth is people may love both, actually. Yeah, yeah. Case. But, you know, I'm, in, we talked about Magpie Murders a moment ago, and there is a writer, Alan Conway, who can't stand his detective, Atticus Punt, and wishes he could write, you know, more serious books and be adulated for, for being a serious literary writer, like, you know, like an Ian, an Ian McEwan or something. But, uh, and he isn't, and it sort of eats him up. But I have to say, I, I am perfectly happy with, with Alex and with Hawthorne and with, with all the characters I write, you know, I am, and I, at the end of the day, I think I am still in control, just. <laughs> 
um so the the insights into your writing brain that you put into the Hawthorne books um I'm intrigued like how much of them are true as in how much of them are you and how much are you've created even though it's a fictional version of you in this so for example I've pulled out a few um there's one where you describe arriving at the fictional literary festival uh in A Line to Kill but the awkwardness is palpable uh, and you talk about how you need some human interaction but you don't really want it at the same time and is that how it feels for you in real life? I think when everything I write about in my sort of sense of thoughts and emotions and, and my view of the world and my, and my writing career is true in these books. I mean, I do want to quickly say to anybody who hasn't read them that I am not a major character. These books are not about me. I am the narrator. The books are about Daniel Hawthorne, Detective Inspector Hawthorne, who solves a crime. I am merely his Watson. And in my Sherlock Holmes books, after all, you don't know a great deal about Watson. But when I do write about sort of, you know, thoughts or insights, I am largely telling the truth, yes. Uh, so I'll pull out another one for you. Um, you write how uh, comparisons to Dan Brown are unhelpful as he sold so many trillions of books. But have you ever, Anthony Horowitz, or do you still compare yourselves yourself to other authors, either in talent or financial book sales style? I don't, I think. I mean, I, I'm not the sort of person who obsesses about, you know, I, I have a particular dislike, actually, of bestseller lists and and rich lists and, and any list. And I, and I don't like awards for that same reason. I don't like anything that makes me think that I'm in competition with other writers, because I'm not. You know, my, my dream is that my books, like, you know, the Alex Ryder books are credited with helping to get young people to read. And if they then go on to read Philip Pullman or, 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 or Darren Shan or, or in Kofa or whoever, Frank, uh, you know, uh, Frank Hotchell Boyce, you know, these are all writers that I admire very much. And I am delighted. I'm not in competition. I am part of a sort of a league, a collaboration. Yeah. And yeah. actually, when I did Harrogate, and I'm sure you've done Harrogate, Anthony, haven't you, that the, the crime writing circuit, that the appetite's so voracious from readers that they're all very supportive of each other because actually the theory is that these people will do a book a week. So it doesn't matter how many books there are. I'm not sure I've actually been invited to Harrogate for about 20 years. I can't have given really? it last time I was there. I'm so but, surprised. Uh, Harrogate don't, don't seem to have much interest in me, but I will say this, that um, when I do meet other crime writers, I mean, I had lunch once with Steve Kavanagh in some Italian, yes. some strange Italian town we found ourselves giving a talk at the same, believe it or not, it was in a, it was in a fun fair. It was a fun fair with a literary festival in the middle of it. <laughs> One of them, and it, it was a, he was a lovely man. And, you know, immediately, every time I go, you know, some of my best friends, I, I forget, if it was in this interview, you asked me about, you know, having friends amongst other writers reading my mm. stuff. But some of my best literary friends, friendships, have been made at literary festivals. Dubai used to be the festival of all festivals because you got 10 days in the sun with a bunch of other writers. And all you did was make friends and chat and have a lovely time. Yeah. And do you find you really, I mean, you said that you've missed that, obviously, because of COVID. But do you need that because writing is such a solitary thing? And yes, you've got your wife and you uh, share stories and you obviously trust her opinion but do you kind of actually need those other outlets of, of having a wider team of colleagues? Well first of all I haven't got my wife I'm in Suffolk and she's in London <laughs> but she's so busy she couldn't be up here she's coming on Saturday so I've got that to look forward to but yes I do miss the festivals and I do need them not just to meet other writers but to meet members of the public I mean you know Twitter is great for sort of people having a quick interchange about whether they like my books or don't like my books or whatever. Uh, and, and, and that's useful. But I love festivals as it's the only opportunity I get to talk about my work, you know, face to face with with my readers. Um, this is this is lovely, too. And, you know, I'm very grateful to the two of you for, for, for doing this interview with me, because, again, for me, it's, it's, a, it's always a pleasure to talk about literature and about writing and all the rest of it. But but the, getting out there and, and meeting people, even the tiny 20 second meeting of signing a book, it, it does really impact on me because I spend so much time on my own. Do you know, I wanted to tell you just on that list business you were talking about before, I won't name them because it would be unfair, but I once had dinner in LA with um, a pop star turned actor, shall we say. And uh, it was the first time I'd heard someone describe themselves in terms of their box office take. So they said to me over the table, yeah, I'm a $9 million guy. That's where I am at the moment. I wonder if that comes from the trade because it, it sounds quite ugly for one to say oneself. Well, I mean, nine million dollar man. Is that what he's talking about for his advance or something? No, box office. Oh, for his box office. Well, I'm still jealous, even so. No, I'm not really. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. And this is something that you can only say if you're doing well at your career and the things are going well. Money is just not an issue for me. I mean, I, I, I have 
again, like, like bestseller lists and, and, and awards and celebrity and, and all the rest of it, what matters to me is the story. What matters to me is the joy, the passion of, of writing and the pleasure of, of reading. I mean, I'm a voracious reader myself, as you would imagine. And, uh, and just, you know, I, I don't think there's anything in the world that quite beats the joy of, of forgive the cliche, curling up with a good book, whether it's on the beach or by the river here in Orford or whether it's, you know, in bed at night or in the first thing in the morning. I've, it's been a years now since I started, read newspapers in bed. I mean, in the morning I used to, the first thing I do is get the iPad out and read the news. Now it's a chapter of a book and life is so much gentler and safer and happier with that uh, as a habit than it is, you know, I still do obviously have to keep up with the news, but not, not you know, but that's part of my work rather than part of my mm. leisure. And actually, part of the joy that we have doing this podcast, Anthony, is discovering new books. I mean, certainly in season two, um, Natalie's put a couple of books my way that just I w hadn't even heard of. And that feeling where you dip into a new book and you fall in love with it is immense, isn't it? Oh, Phil, it's a, there's nothing greater in the world than to have somebody recommend a book to you and you go out and get that book. Well, better still to give you a book, you know, mm. as, a, as a present, I think you'll like this. And then to find, yes, I do like this. I love this. Thank you so much. Because first of all, you know, I, I have a lot of books in my house. I must have about three or 4,000 of them. And every single book, and I've always believed this, a book is not just a story that you read. It is an object in itself. And the receiving of the book and the time you read the book and your feelings and your age at that time are all part of that experience. So being given a book, I'll always remember, oh, this was a book from so-and-so and wasn't it wonderful? And, and thank you so much. And it adds to the friendship. So I think a book recommendation is one of the greatest things in life. Yeah, me too. And I also, um, I liked what you were just saying about starting the day with reading a chapter of a book, because this is a few years ago now, but when I was commuting every day and uh, still working in a newsroom and it was incredibly stressful. One of the tips that I kind of did to myself or worked out was better was rather than waking up and the first thing I used to do was like look at my emails and then check the news and obviously I had to be across the news agenda um, but I would wake up a little bit earlier and spend 15 minutes in bed reading the book <laughs> and then I'd wake up and get out of bed and feel just much uh, brighter and ready to face the day. And less besieged. Yeah. That's right, less angry. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I would just mention one other point that I, amused me when I was reading A Line to Kill, uh, that you write about, you're entering a character's house, I won't say which character, uh, but you write, I wandered over to the side of the room and cast my eye over the long lines of books arranged on sagging wooden shelves that covered an entire wall. I'm afraid to say that old habits die hard and I was half looking for any sign of my own books. Worse still, I was quite gratified to find a hardback edition of Moriarty next to a complete collection of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Is that something you do? Uh -huh. You asked me how much is true about myself in these books. That is so me, I'm afraid. I can't even do a Zoom call without searching, you know, trying to enlarge the screen and looking over the person's shoulder to see if my book is on their shelf behind them. I haven't, haven't spotted one yet, but it is. And I, I'm afraid also I can I can spot a book of mine at about 50 yards. I mean, you know, can you? You from the colours and such. Oh, there's one of mine over there. It's a it's a terrible. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Lovely to see that. But um, no, it is. It's something I still do. I was. Yeah, I was walking down the river a couple of day, weeks ago and there was a, a second-hand bookstore there and I stopped to look, not because I wanted a book, but just, have they got any of mine? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever done that thing where if you do that then in a bookstore, if you see one of yours, will you whip a pen out and secretly sign it? No, but I have been caught in Waterstone some years ago pulling a book out of the shelf and turning it round so it was face, uh, facing the audience. And it was just as my books were beginning to break through and the person came up to me and said, you wrote that, didn't you? And I said, oh, God, they've seen ah. it. <laughs> but then, of course, they were very nice. That was Waterstone's bath. I remember that. Oh, how funny. How funny. <laughs> my, children, my children used to hate going out with me because I would send them into bookshops to do exactly that. Go and find my books and turn them around, put them on the bestseller table. Oh, not again, Dad. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you did that, though. But you're right. But I think, um, you know, I mean, I obviously haven't got books out there at the moment, hopefully at some point. Uh, but yeah, well, whenever I go into somebody's house, not that I've done it much recently, but you do kind of use it as a marker of what a person you think is like, depending on what they have on their bookshelves, do you find? I, I wouldn't, you know, Nasty, I'm not going to agree with you, I wouldn't make a judgment on somebody on their on what they're reading, to, to, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, obviously they're a nicer and more intelligent person if they are reading me, but beyond that, <laughs> um, what I will make a judgment on is a house without books. And sometimes yeah. you go into a house and there's not a book in sight. And that always gives me a sense of sort of, not despair, but a sense of sort of sadness, of loss, of, of you know, how can you live without books? Um, 
so so empty shelves. Uh, but but you know, a shelf full of Dan Brown and what what made me think, you know, really? I mean, it's sort of each to their own. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like there are some things. Actually, I don't know how judgmental I am actually on what is on somebody's shelf. Or if it is just more the fact that there are books or not many it is books. It's the reason why no I've books. never invited you to my house. <laughs> oh, so that was the happens thing. Oh my God, what is on your show? <laughs> <laughs> but also, there's another side to it. There's a corollary to that, which is people who buy books for show, books they've never read. You know, yeah. they have a full set of this and that on their bookshelves just to look good. And I think Zoom is responsible for an awful lot of that. People, you know, you, you think almost that you can buy sort of fake. You can. You can, yeah, in Ikea. You can, you can't see to, to yeah. book up you so people think how well read you are. But uh, And there are one or two people I've noticed on Zoom who I think, oh, yeah, really, you're showing off, mate. And one thing I never do in sending a Zoom is put my own book behind me in that. I may be an egotist, but that is just too damn obvious to have my own book sort of hovering over my shoulders. One of yours in the background instead. Have it my friends. Yeah, perfect. Do you remember when we did Linda LaPlante and she had the books and all her BAFTAs behind her? Yes, well, I'd need a very small shelf for all my <laughs> Do you, what comes first for you? Because I always, I'm always interested in that there's always some sort of interesting social commentary that you've got in your stories that's really pertinent. And sometimes it's more obvious than others, but it always seems to be there. And, and I wonder if that's the trigger for you to have an idea to write something and then you build a structure and a framework around that idea that you want to put out there. Well, thank you, first of all, for posing that question in such a way that had no spoilers as to what the social element of A Line to Kill is, because it is very much part of the plot. But actually, it's the other way around. Where I start with always is the murder itself. I really mm. just begin with somebody murders somebody else for a reason. And what is the reason? Is it clever? Something that's different? Something that's never been done before? Something that's surprising? Is the identity of the killer going to be fun and curious when we reveal who it is and the person who is killed? Do they deserve it? Is it the right person? All that sort of questions. And then the mechanics of the murder, the clues, the, the timings, the sort of the circumstances, then where it leads to and all that. So the structure of the book, if you like the scaffolding, is all about murder. It's all about, that's a good title for a book, all about murder. Might use that. No, sorry. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you better write it down. All of that is sort of built in. But then, you know, you look at the world, like, for example, Alderney is a setting of, um, of A Line to Kill. And one of the themes in the book, which is not giving anything away, is the Nazi concentration camps that were built on the island. And when you are doing your research, or when I'm doing my research, um, if I find something like that, it, it becomes obvious that it has to be part of the book. And also because throughout my life, I've been trying to add value to whodunits. I don't think it is sensible to spend a year of my life writing a book of which the conclusion is only the butler did it. I want to provide people with something that's a little meatier. Look at Foyle's War. Foyle's War, which took me 16 years of my life. Although every show in it had a murder, I think what it's most remembered for is its depiction of life in England, 1940 through to 45, six and seven. You know, the story of the mm -hmm. front, you know, of being the front line behind the war or behind the, you know, sorry, the home front in the war. Um, so always I'm looking for other things to write about as well as the sort of the fun of the whodunit. Uh, well, there's a really nice passage in this, and again, I won't give anything away, but there's a nice part where, uh, all, you know, the police that are investigating alongside Hawthorne believe that it is one suspect, and you actually, as Anthony, say, well, that means I haven't got a book. I haven't got a book, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That, that is the biggest worry in a line to kill. I said, I'm always worried that Hawthorne won't solve it. Uh, um, and, and therefore I won't have a book. But actually even worse is if it turns out that the killer is blindingly obvious and it is X, and I thought it was X from the start and all the readers thought it was X from the start, and yes, it is X, then you've got a bad book. So I'm, that's also a vestigial worry of the murder writer that the killer will turn out to be somebody expected. Yeah, uh, I should mention as well that Hawthorne is really funny, <laughs> I think, and that how much, like there are some really good, sort of almost one-liners in this where, you know, the interplay between Hawthorne and yourself, uh, Horowitz is the narrator author in these stories, is just so cutting. And that must be a really delicious part of these stories to write. It, I, my, my relationship with Hawthorne is a little strained and I suppose humour helps me get through it. I mean, it's funny because I didn't, I didn't intend the books to have that slightly comic edge to them and I'm sort of careful not to let it go too far because I don't want to end up writing sort of Jeeves and Worcester style comedies. But, but you're right, there is a sort of a levity there and actually it does help because, you know, when you think about it, I revere Agatha Christie, but her books are a little short on jokes. Mm. 
Uh, and, and indeed, humour and murder mystery don't always go together hand in hand. Sherlock Holmes, I mean, also never really cracks jokes. Um, so I'm glad it's there, but it wasn't intended. Yeah, because also they're not really, as, as Natalie said, they're not jokes per se, are they? But they're kind of, I think it's a very British thing. It's what British people do, where they'll puncture tension with a, with a line. Do you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? It could be a dark line. It might be darkly comic. And a lot of the stuff between you and Hawthorne here, it's sarcastic and it's irreverent. And so they're not, you're not doing gags per se, but they do provide levity. You know, I, like Natalie, I laughed out loud several times. In yeah, this me book. too. No, it's nice to hear it. And it is, I mean, I think it's based on observation rather than trying to write gags. I mean, funnily enough, the next book I've got coming out is um, a Diamond Brothers book. You know, I write these sort of very silly comedy books for young people uh, with, with two detectives in. And there's one called, uh, the title alone will tell you what sort of book it is. It's called Where Seagulls Dare. And uh, um, and it's and and writing that was a case of just sitting down and and fishing for jokes, just trying to find more jokes to throw at the page. And I, and I do love doing that. But in this book, it's different. It's more a sort of a it's the atmosphere. It's a flavour. It just sort of happens. Well, as as a parent ever, I've got two kids. My son is now eight, and my daughter is twelve. But I, I assume that some of those jokes in Where Seagulls Dare are to do with poo and we because that's... No, not at all. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to, to, to disagree with you. I think probably for the second time in this interview, I don't like poo and we jokes in, in young people's books. <laughs> I think they're too easy. Where Seagulls Dare is actually a joke that will be well above the head of your eight-year-old because it's, of course, you know, the film, the wonderful Clint Eastwood film. It's a send-up of a film they have never seen or heard of. But when I'm writing these books, part of it is written for the adult reading it with them mm. to have a, a private joke on themselves. And actually what it's about is about right wing politics, uh, because it's it's, uh, you know, in the in the original film, it's set in sort of Nazi occupied Europe. So this is now set in sort of neo Nazi occupied Britain, although the words neo Nazi do not appear in the story. That's interesting because I read an interview that you did with this was it the Spectator a couple of days ago talking about New politics. Statesman, New Statesman, yeah. New Statesman, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how you've moved your own politics so is that i find it so interesting when some of this stuff gets into then what you're actually doing fictionally well since you mentioned it where seagulls dare is based on politics in the last four or five years and the move towards the right and it is sort of there's a serious inspiration for what is i have to quickly say a very silly and sort of fast-paced adventure story but but I haven't so much changed my, I have changed my politics. I think as people get older, they do see the world differently. What of course has happened is, is that politics has changed around me. I mean, political parties that were in one place are now in a one which is far more extreme. And uh, and and that is, I, I think I'm one of many, many people. The response to that article in the New Statesman has been, well, you know, you're only saying the obvious. There is now a very, very large majority of people who are very unhappy and who feel bereft, who feel homeless politically. You only have to look at the, you know, the Cheshire by-election to see to see that happening. Um, but they, yeah. that's how that's how it is. So do you feel do you feel that you belonged? Uh, do you belong in the same political place on the spectrum? But you're saying the parties have shifted, and that's why you will I shift your moved, vote. I have moved further to the left. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind now. Look, anyway, I mean, what Rishi Sunak has done in the last three years has been effectively a left-wing agenda in in terms of sort of you know the government taking over pretty much everything and and doling out money to everybody and, and all the rest of it. And I'm not criticising that for what a single minute. I'm merely saying that, that the spectrum has changed, the political spectrum. My own beliefs have changed about what is right and what is wrong. And there doesn't seem to be a party at the moment that actually talks to me anymore. And I think there are a lot of people who feel exactly the same. I think that's the trouble with these extremely sort of populist type governments, which is that they have a sort of a core that is strong and keeps them uh, ahead in the polls. But that core, unfortunately, excludes everybody. And that was one of the first things that Mr. Johnson did when he created his cabinet, was to actually put in it only people with one mindset. So therefore, somebody like me doesn't feel there's anybody in the cabinet who represents me. Mm. Uh, and so, so it's it's very difficult to know quite what to do or what, who to vote for or, or 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 how to react. And all I can do is is write books. And so I've written a book which has which laughs at what is happening. But yeah, but on that point though, again, it's sort of there's obviously a clear moral societal stance that you're taking in your writing, and that has inspired this story. And and I personally, I think it's great that it's aimed at a young audience. I don't know the age of the, your sort of target audience for that book but um 
but you know I was kind of glibly saying about poo and wee jokes because I've got uh, an eight-year-old son and he does love that but also he has a really high moral compass uh, which is what came out of his latest school report um, and he's always very quick to uh, say if something's right or wrong or fair or not and and I and I think that that isn't something that we should shy away from at all in talking to children. Forgive me. First of all, I didn't mean to sort of leap down your throat on that. It's just a personal per- thing. <laughs> you know, I do occasionally put scatological jokes into my books, but by and large, I I tend not to like them. I, I just think they're too. Easy. It's an easy win, yeah. I always thought the reading, you know, and it's interesting you should say to me, but yes, of course, eight-year-olds and ten-year-olds and twelve-year-olds and actually sixty-six-year-olds will laugh. <laughs> much. I mean, it's, it's it will laugh and giggle and 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 enjoy them. Uh, so I'm not sort of being all, you know, who misses sort of prudish. But you go on to say that your your son is already interested in the world around him, and that I guess is what I'm also doing. I think I want to make it clear that that that. I don't proselytize in my children's books. I don't like the idea of lecturing or preaching or politicizing or or even throwing opinions at young people. But as with the whodunits, a line to kill and other ones, you know, I want them to be about more than just the sort of the basic structure of the story. Um, and I think that politics are in, you know, politics are at the moment, the difference between life and death. The decisions mm-hmm. the government is making, even as we are conducting this interview, could kill tens of thousands of people. Uh, and is that a decision that is based on science or on politics or on personal ambition? These are the questions of the day. So, uh, so you know, the, the, the role of the writer is actually in a funny way more important than it's ever been before to provide a safe place and to provide some sort of debate on what is happening around us. So what other, what else is kind of ticking over in your brain? Because I know you've got, you know, I imagine your work load is laid out for many months to come because I know there are some more Sherlock stories well, that's on the way. A company called Storytel in Denmark who had hired me as a sort of an editor to create a sort of a, 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 a what I should call a sort of a steampunk version of Sherlock Holmes. Slightly so it'll be recognizably Holmes but, but very different, a sort of a play on Holmes and his world. Uh, which I'm very much enjoying. It's an interesting experience. The storyteller is huge. I mean, they have enormous markets for their audiobooks. So it's, it's an opportunity to reach out to a very, very wide audience, which is exciting. And, and is then, that audiobook only, Anthony? It is audiobooks. They, are, they create original audiobooks. It's very, very interesting that they should be doing that with the hope that there'll be spin offs, which might include books. I mean, it's the other way around. You know, right. it's a really interesting market. And, they and, are, and what does that make you play with differently creatively if you are just writing something? to be spoken as opposed to be read? Well, I'm not gonna write the books myself, so it doesn't actually matter. All I'm doing at the moment is constructing stories and the world of the books, which I will then discuss with the writers who will do the work and do the writing. Oh. Otherwise I wouldn't have taken it on. I don't have the time to write books. And anyway, I don't like, uh, how can I put this delicately? Um, I'm too busy at the moment to write a book for somebody else. I, I'm writing the books, my books. I mean, I've, I've got so many books commissioned, I wanna just get deal with those. Uh, so, it, but it, but it is an interesting world, and it's it's not one I'd really thought about before, and it's a little bit outside my comfort zone, which is why I took it on. You know, I've I've always said writing is an adventure. You've got to keep challenging yourself, doing different things, so you don't get stale. Um, so so uh, that's what I'm doing, and then of course I'm writing a new James Bond novel at the moment, which is occupying most of my day and night. Are you uh, enjoying it? Loving it. Tough work. It's not easy, but it's I'm so privileged to have been given, you know, not one but three books are about my great hero, James Bond. And, and, and I'm really interested in this book. It's very different from the last two I did. Much more introspective, darker, quieter, but, but I hope not disappointing. I hope it's still very James Bond. Uh, and then after that, there's a TV show I've got to write. Uh, I've just been commissioned to do a 10 by 30 minutes for Sony, which is a murder mystery set in a jungle, curiously, um, uh, uh, in the Mexican jungle. And is that an original story of yours? An original story of mine, yes. Um, and I, and then, then I hopefully will adapt Moonflower Murders, which is, if Magpie Murders is a success, they'll want us to move on to that very quickly. Uh, Alex Ryder is continuing. I'm sort of working with the writer Guy Burt on a, a, the third season. Hopefully that will happen. And, and we're already developing scripts and sort of, he's again doing all the writing. I'm just there to help. Uh, and so there's quite a lot of work happening. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling quite anxious just hearing you outline how much you've got to do. Do you, are you, I mean, because you're so prolific, I think you must be very good at sticking to deadlines anyway. So is it not stressful for you to know all that's looming? And do you actually like the security of having all these different projects lined up? Well, I'll say this to you, Natalie, I don't think that sort of this sort of 
profligacy of sort of writing I mean sort of you know this uh, writing so much so so quickly is necessarily something to be admired or envied it's, I don't quite know how I've got myself into the situation it might be envy, it might be not envy it might be um, just nervousness you know the sense of insecurity you know if I if I've got five commissions then I'm safe for another five years sort of feeling uh it might just be that I have too many ideas and I'm too sort of I don't know what it is but but I sometimes think to myself that if I've made a mistake in my career it has been sort of jumping all over the joint you know I'm not easily pigeonholed children's books adult books television film plays a little journalism you know there's so much that I do that, that it's hard to get if I just wrote one book a year and it was an Alex Ryder book and I was now an Alex Ryder 37 you know maybe my life would be a little easier you know what's yeah. interesting I don't want to turn it into in the psychiatrist chair but earlier in the interview you're saying that you're fortunate enough to be in a position where money doesn't matter or money isn't a concern and yet you just said to us I'm good for another five years what are you good for well, what's that, that feeling it's not about how much money I might earn in the five years it's not a question about money Billy. it's a question about of being employed it's a matter of not of people not saying actually his books are rubbish we're not going to hire him anymore. Uh, and staying That's relevant it's a, and it, well, it's also age as well. It's about sort of getting these ideas out before I die. It's about, uh, it's about, it's about many things. It's not, a, I don't, I never, not since I was in my twenties have I taken a job on because it paid well. But you still want to be wanted as a writer. That's, that's the five year thing, is it? I, look, I am very aware that writers entering into their seventies and even into their eighties will receive, I mean, every career of every writer will sort of diminish a little bit because there's, as it should, new talent is coming up. There are new exciting writers around and, you know, in children's books and adult books everywhere. And, and they are the ones who you, you know, maybe not you two, but, but somebody will be interviewing in 10 years from now. And I will be sitting in, in you know, in my rocking chair, looking at the view, but, and, and, but I don't want that, but it is sort of what I accept might happen. But while I still have the energy and the desire and the passion and the, and the love of writing that I have, I am desperate to exploit it. And so that's why I tie myself down to as many contracts as I can. So I can think to myself, not only have I got a line to kill, I've got Close to Death, which is the next Hawthorne book. I've got Moonflower Murders to adapt for TV. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. I'm not going to be irrelevant until at least 2025. <laughs> but I think it is a really interesting uh, sort of argument that we probably have with ourselves anyway, because I think I was talking to one of my other friends recently about how in a similar way, um, uh, I so I've been freelance now for about three years and I've got a range of jobs I do some voiceover work I do some journalism I do this podcast I develop podcasts for other people um, I write production notes sometimes I do my own writing and it's kind of a bit all over the place but I think I've always been creatively restless but I've often wondered would I have been better off if I'd even in like when I did journalism I did entertainment journalism because I was as interested in books, as film, as theatre, as music. And I've kind of thought, well, should I have just like said, I'm gonna only do books or I'm only gonna focus on theatre and that will be my thing. And it's more easily defined as a career, but I don't think, I think I'm too restless. I don't think that would have been satisfying either. And I kind of sense that's a similar trait maybe in you. I think I completely understand where you're coming from. And I, and, and you know, I think it's, that's great. I think that, you know, Writing is an adventure, you, I, and, and the idea that you can do so many different things. And you know, I envy the fact that you've got strings to your bow that, that, that have not been available to me. But but the more strings you have, and the more fun you can have, the less likely you are to become bored with the very notion mm. of sitting by yourself in a room with a yellow duck on the shelf behind you for the next <laughs> year. That is that, that is that is our future. But in my case, it's 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 this room with the, with the mirror and, and you know the porthole. And such. So it's sort of, you know, and and it's funny that no matter. I, I I think I may even say this inside the book, a line to kill that um, that the difference between a a worldwide best-selling writer and a new writer is actually not that different. Mm. You're both sitting at a desk in front of a computer on your own with a packet of jaffa cakes and a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, and before we move on from this, being creatively restless, which I think is a great thing, but it it also makes you feel weird sometimes too, because yeah. Um, so just as you brought up Bond. I was wondering, because you clearly do a really good job with developing new stories in the continuation of Bond, and it sounds as if you're really enjoying this one, have you ever been asked or have you ever wanted to contribute to the scripts of the Bond movies? Because, you know, there's often so much that's out there in the ether about those 
stories on film and how whether they get them right or not and I kind of feel like well you're sitting there you're writing these stories that people are really happy with like is it a path that you've you'd like to explore um, I've never been asked I never will be um why bond, do you think that is because the bond estate who hire me to write the books are very different from Eon Productions Barbara Broccoli Michael G Wilson who make the films they do a perfectly good job without me, and I don't think they have any need for me. Um, I love the films, like everybody else in the world. Yeah. Um, but could I write one? Probably not. I think it must be quite difficult when you're talking about that much money, that much expectation, and huge actors, and 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 a sort of a demand, an insatiable demand for sort of new ideas and that pace of storytelling. I think it would be extremely difficult, and I'm almost relieved that they never have done. But I assure you, they never will. You can tell how difficult it was when we saw Quantum of Solace. Oh, that was one of the few that went a little bit wrong. Let's be yeah. let's be fair. They took what? Well, how many films have been now? Twenty five, and that that was the one that got away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you know. Again, I think it's that it's interesting where obviously those films are made by a huge committee of people, and you know, as we know, that sometimes happens that the original gem of idea of an idea can go awry when you suddenly have however many other opinions you've got to take into account whereas writing your stories and your books in the main it's you completing your vision that's absolutely right there's nothing I, in my view and I've written all of them there is nothing more challenging than writing a film simply because they cost so much money to produce that nerves are very high and people's opinions matter and everybody is scared because, you know, you write a book, the worst that can happen is that it doesn't sell very well. You write a bad film that loses a lot of money, people are gonna lose their jobs and, and you know, their, their futures are gonna be sort of ended. If you're a producer of a complete turkey, you're in trouble. So that sense of nervousness and worry and sort of the notes you get and the, and the, the rewrites and the sort of endlessness of it. I mean, I still love writing films and, and have had some good experiences on it, but, but it's, it's, it's a very nervy world to be in. And because you've done both, just give people listening an, an example for us, because you told me on the radio recently that you've got to write in the next couple of days a, a fight scene for your Bond book. If you were writing that fight scene for a Bond film, how much more complex is it as the writer? In other words, would, that, would you just write on the page, they fight, and then a choreographer works it out for film? Or would you go into detail about who punches who where and how it ends? Um, if I've got some really clever idea for how the fight concludes, or, or, or something that's never been done before, a weapon that is used. I mean, think about Die Hard, the, the sequence at the end of the first Die Hard film where Bruce Willis grabs a fire hose and jumps off the edge of the building and smashes through a window. That I would write if I could think it up. But, but I think you don't write every, every punch, no. You, 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 you write a fight. But for me, I would, if, if, it was, if I was writing this Bond fight, which I've got to do as a book, it'll probably be about three pages, I imagine, of description maximum. But in a film, it would probably be about two paragraphs maximum there. Mm. And then you're in someone else's hands. You're in a choreographer, a stunt's hands. Yeah, you talk to them. I, I remember when I was working with Spielberg and Jackson on the Tintin film, I wrote some very, very complicated uh, Tintin sequences. And when I got to that meeting, uh, I forget which of them, but one of them said to me, you know, Anthony, you're wasting your time. That's not, that's not what you do. That's what we do. And, and that taught me something, you know. That wow. I could, and they were right, of course, yeah. you know. You know that they're geniuses of exactly that sort of thing and, and such. I just thought it was my duty to throw lots of ideas at it, and I thought they were good ideas, but they were unwanted ideas. Hmm. That's really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. Should we get some recommendations from yeah. you then? Uh, recommendations for books that you've loved. We've talked about how much I love recommending books. So here are three books which I have for sort of summer reading, I guess. The first one is quite a dark book, and it's non-fiction. It's Anna Seber's new book on Ethel Rosenberg, an American. Ah, uh, I'm interviewing her next week on the radio. Oh, well, you can tell her, but this was my first recommendation today. Um, obviously, Ethel Rosenberg executed in June 1953 as a traitor and as the wife of a traitor. Her husband, Julius Rosenberg, was sort of in the, in the driving seat, or so it appears. And what Anne does brilliantly is to humanise Ethel and to, to describe the appalling nature of the trial and what happened to her, the injustice of it all, and the sort of really very horrible episode in the cold war in america it's a but it's it's a passionate book it's a, it's it's i've read pretty much everything she's written i think this is very much her best book and i'm sure she'll be talking to you about it because i believe it's i won't spoil her thunder but it's, okay it has had wonderful reviews and it's definitely yeah good. yeah and also there's been a huge campaign repeated isn't it, in the states to try and get her pardoned posthumously and and obama rejected it i don't think they tried with trump i think they're trying again with biden 
I, do, I doubt it would have gone very far with Trump. And I, I have a feeling that Biden has already said no as well. She'll oh, right, okay. tell you about this. She worked with the sons of, um, of Ethel Rosenberg. She actually had access to them and they helped with the book, which also gives it a very unusual slant. But the, what I loved about this book was its humanity and the beauty, the, the, beauty, the passion of the writing. It's extraordinary. So just give us that title again. It's called uh, Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. Great. Next one. Um, a crime novel, since I've been talking about crime. Uh, I recently read Ragnar Jonasson's new book, The Girl Who Died. Um, now, Ragnar is a, is a wonderful Icelandic writer. So this is sort of Scandi Noir or whatever it's called these days. And it's a story of a teacher called Una who um, responds to an advert in the paper, teacher wanted at the edge of the world. The edge of the world is a village in Iceland called Skala. And um, she goes there. It's a tiny, tiny community in, in this arid wasteland surrounded by sort of ice and, and stone and granite. And there is a criminal conspiracy of some sort. The villagers are hiding a secret. And it is a crime novel. It's actually based on a true crime. But what makes it remarkable is that the house which she stays in is haunted. So there is a ghost in the middle of all this too. So it's actually a sort of a melange of genres, but it's very, very well told. Ragnar is, a, is, a, is I will be honest, he's a friend of mine. That's not why I chose this book. It just happens to be one I read recently, but, but he is a terrific writer and he has, a, he's, has an international reputation. He began his life instead of translating Agatha Christie. Yeah, he's done 13 of them, I think. That's right. Uh, and and you, you should talk to him. He's, 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 I have, yeah. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, he's been on the radio show, Anthony. And you know what? We, we started... He's, uh, we started by the fact that he'd been at Wembley for all the Euros games. I mean, I don't know who his ticket agent is, but he's got a very good ticket agent who gets him well, into... I, he's in London now because he invited me to lunch with him tomorrow, I think. But uh, I, I'm, I'm in Suffolk and I can't come. And I, I don't even know how he got into this country. I mean, you know, maybe maybe it's easy for myself. Anyway, that's the second book. Really the good third book. one, about which I have less to say, but it, I'm, I choose this because it's the last book I read. Literally, the last, I, I finished it last week. And, and it's called American Dirt by Janine Cummins. Now, you may have heard of this book. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I've heard about it. It fell foul of um, certain critics who uh, objected to her cultural appropriation. This is a story about a mother and a son who are living in Mexico. The mother is married to a journalist who is married by the drug cartels. And uh, the mother and the son head off for America as immigrants. And it's the story of their journey on a train which is called La Bestia which curiously I've been researching for another project, the one in the Mexican jungle, involves very peripherally La Bestia, uh, which is the name of this train which immigrants ride to America, incredibly dangerous. And I read it because I was interested in the row. Was it, was it fair that she, what she'd done? And I, I won't tell you what my opinions were. I think that's one of the reasons to read it and make up your mind for yourself. But it, I will say this, it is an extremely good read. I mean, it's, it's gonna be made into a feature film, apparently. It, it has been a bestseller around the world and, and there are shortcomings to the book. There are there are scenes I thought, oh, I, I, are you sure that's what you wanted to write? But but that said, it is still what you would call a good beach read. It's a really compelling book with great characters and and a very very strong, uh, highly energized plot. And that and one's called again with the with the argument about immigrants, which is raging at the moment. You know, with with, mm. with politics. Only yesterday it was in the front page news about our arrangements with France. I think it is very interesting to look at immigrants as human beings with names and backgrounds and and lives, rather than uh, than, than 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 statistics in a newspaper. And just give us the title of that one again. The title is American Dirt by Janine Cummins. Yeah, it's been Three, on my list great. to want to read for a while, and again, I haven't got to it yet, but. You know, as I'm sure you do as somebody writing as well, we're all white on this podcast, but it's a really interesting thing about how how you do reflect the world around you, but do it in a culturally respectful way. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's quite front and centre in my mind when I'm writing and, and how to do that. It is one of the big questions of our time, what writers should be allowed to write and where, and where they cross a line and how they write and, and such. And it's, it's something that I think about an awful lot uh, when I create characters. Particularly, I also look at the Alex Ryder books, which I was writing 20 years ago, which quite honestly, I'm not sure would be completely appropriate now. Because? Mm -hmm. Because of, of using colour, of the ethnicity of a character as part of their personality which I think now is frowned upon and you know times have moved on uh using using the using a, a, a character having having a disability of some sort even that word itself now I believe is not used anymore so you know it is it is a fast moving train uh it is my own bestia if you like the sort of the way of of, of cultural change and what is acceptable and what isn't and again something that as I get older I'm very aware of yeah 
Likewise. Well, as ever, we could talk to you for hours, Anthony. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so sharing much. This you with us. But it's been a pleasure talking to both of you. I'm so grateful to you for inviting me. Uh, and I wish you both, and you particularly, Natalie, with your books, uh, the very greatest success. And we send our thanks to Mr. Anthony Horowitz for being our first and so far only returning guest on bestsellers. And I can't wait to read that Bond. I love his Bond stuff. I haven't read any of his Bond. Have you not? Have you yet. not? No, but I think I really want to. And and I would be really intrigued if he was given the opportunity at some point to plot one of the Bond movies. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think, yeah, I think it would be, he's a brilliant plotter, isn't he? And he's a very clever man. You can tell there's a lot of space in his brain, I think, um, for all of these storylines and plots and scripts that he works on. Um, Trigger Mortis is is my favourite of them. That's definitely okay. the one. I, I tell you why they're good, Nat, is because they're not like, they are true to the Flemings. So when I interviewed him for the first Bond one that he did, the title just momentarily escapes me, but he said to me, have you ever read any of Fleming, Phil? And I said, no. And he said, go and read one. I said, which one? He went, Goldfinger. So I did, okay. and it was brilliant. I really liked it. Now, it is a little bit stuck in that era, so you have to bear that in mind. Mm. Anthony's book isn't. He's managed to get some modernization of views while staying true to the original Bond. So there's not really, there's one nice car in it. There's no gadgets in it because the gadgets were all a film trope, you know? Yeah, yeah. So um, it kind of feels very authentic. And that must be a difficult job to do that. Yeah, really difficult. I spoke um, actually on a James Bond podcast about... I saw this recently. It came (laughs) up on the bestsellers Twitter feed. I did it now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, uh, the A to Z of James Bond, which is a really fascinating podcast uh, because I've interviewed Daniel Craig a lot of times, but we were talking about some of the different Bond stories and my husband's a huge fan of the Fleming books. Right. And has read most of them, if not all of them. Um, and I kind of tried to read one, but I fa- just found it a bit too of its time and misogynistic. And I couldn't quite get past that to enjoy it at the time that I was trying to read it. But yeah, I'd really like to have a go at one of Horowitz's Bonds, I think. You, you'll enjoy those more then in that case, because he's knocked all that out of it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, Forever in a Day was the one I couldn't remember. I've just looked that up now. And then Trigger Mortis, and he's writing the third. So yeah, you should do that. I'd be, I'd be intrigued to know then what you made of it, you know? I think it'd be quite interesting. Yeah. So at this point, I think it's probably worth saying that this could be the end of series two of bestsellers, but we are hoping to have some mini series in the run up to Christmas, potentially, because there are so many good books that come out in the autumn and so many brilliant authors to investigate. And we just really enjoy doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here to that. Yeah. So there might be a surprise kind of bonus episode coming before that, might there? but we can't, <laughs> can't say anymore. We just don't know, do we? We, we don't yeah no. it's like leave, leave them wanting more no. do you want yeah is that the phrase in fact we so want secrecy it'd be almost pointless to even talk about it any further wouldn't it let's leave it there <laughs> yeah, it might not happen so let's not uh let's not go there anymore with any more clues um but yeah this has been a, a thrill as ever to chat to all these brilliant authors try and befriend them or not uh <laughs> encourage people to do some reading um so thank you very much for listening uh, it's been a blast yeah, here again. And if you want to drop us an email, we'll still be monitoring the email. So you don't don't think, oh, there's no more episode. They've gone away. We won't go away. So it's bestsellerspodcast.gmail.com for your correspondence. Bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. And when you continue to rate, review, and subscribe the pod for us, please. So give it five stars. Give it a little review. And sm- I mean, you're already subscribed, aren't you? I can count on you for that. And tell at least five mates for us because that will really help because we were looking at the um, download figures the other day and they are now growing and growing and growing which is the way it should be it's good 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 so um and don't be afraid to if you've only joined us on this season go and dig into season one because there are some amazing writers in season one david nichols linda laplante michael connolly tons tons more so don't be afraid to go back and um experience some of those because those books are still great they're still out they're still great you know it's kind of the pod people call it evergreen content but um, I'm not sure I'm down with that phrase, but what I'm trying to say to you is they won't be out of date. You will still enjoy both the pods and the books. That's true. And I'm always down with the Barbara Streisand song, Evergreen. (laughs) So that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want a great Barbara Streisand story? Yeah, go on. Always. So you know the song that she does with Barry Gibb, Guilty? Yeah, there's a whole album. It's not just the one song. It's a brilliant album. But the story's about that one song, right? Okay, fine. So... um, 
I'm interviewing Richard Marks on the radio, right? So I've, I've found this out from him that he's recording in one studio in this complex and she's recording in another. And she apparently puts her head around the door and she says, are you Richard Marks? And he says, yeah, why? And she says, I've heard you're really good at musical impersonations. And he says, well, what do you need? She says, Barry Gibbs flown away and there's a line harmony that he hasn't done. Can you come and mimic it? No way. So apparently the line, our love is illegal. He's yeah. Richard Marks in that. It's not Barry Gibb because Barry missed it. <laughs> that great story. That's, that's great. Yeah, I, I totally want to go listen to that now and see if I can identify any difference. Oh, amazing. Some homework as well. Some musical homework. That's good. Um, I put it on um, last night and I couldn't actually hear it, but all the cats in the neighbourhood went crazy. Oh, come on now. It's a brilliant song. Um <laughs> Yes, thank you for listening uh, and reading along, hopefully with some of these stories and there will be lots more to come. Do not worry. I love it when you get cross from me. I don't get cross. I get psychopathic. <laughs> <laughs>